So good morning. Welcome to Cornerstone Bible Church. Again, it's already been said, the Discover a CBC class, first one this afternoon. I want to thank you for um, your kind uh, response to uh, the Moors, to their uh, daughter, Hannah and Aaron. Uh, I don't know how many. There was a lot of cards. And so they took those and they sent them off this last week. So thank you for that. And then yesterday, a tremendous time of uh, rejoicing in our congregation. Uh, Alec and Joanna got engaged uh, yesterday, yeah. <laughs> Joanna thought she was going for a walk out uh, the Indian Mound area, and unbeknownst to her, there was 37 people in the woods watching her. <laughs> they were literally like somewhere between 12 to 15 people, and she had no idea they were there. And so, uh, Alec, good job. Pulled it off. You've got to keep her. You know, it's a tremendous, uh, tremendous blessing. We're so excited for you guys. Uh, and then I want you uh, just to ask you to continue to pray for Pastor James Coates and the Grace Life uh, Church Fellowship there in Edmonton. Um, the last I had heard just a couple days ago, um, they were not granting him bail. Uh, so uh, in the meantime, in the province, they just had let some um, sex offenders out of uh, jail, but they're not going to allow this gentleman out. They're not going to uh, grant him bail. So I think the the date for his uh, trial is in May, and if I'm correct, we're in March, right? So pray that he has a tremendous witness. The gospel obviously goes forward. Um, you know, if if you want to make a martyr of him, if that's what the Canadian government is doing, um, then I think probably the gospel is going to be exalted. Uh, because I think his case is known uh, in a lot of different realms, right? And so just keep praying for him. Pray for that family. Pray for that fellowship, his wife, uh, Aaron, her two children. Obviously, pray for freedom if that would be God's, uh, God's will, but, made, uh, but more importantly, that the gospel goes forward, right? So let's uh, just stop and, and bow and, and pray. Uh, our Father, we're so thankful again for the privilege that we have of coming together to uh, worship you. We do not take it lightly whatsoever, uh, that we have the privilege to gather together uh, in person. And we're thankful for that. We pray, Lord, you'd protect that. We pray that you'd allow us to proclaim freely the gospel that comes uh, from you by grace through faith in the person of Jesus Christ alone. We are so thankful for um, just the many blessings that you pour out upon us. We're thankful for just the, the grace of uh, relationships and as you are calling uh, Alec and Joanna together, we just pray your blessing upon their life, uh, that uh, they would serve you well, and that Christ would be honored in their relationship. And now for this hour coming up, Lord, we pray that you would honor yourself through the preaching and the proclamation of your word. Open eyes to see, ears that were stopped to hear, and may we rejoice in the grace that you show us. Uh, through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, as you desire men to come to a saving knowledge of the truth. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Take your Bible and open to John chapter 5, verse 40. John chapter 5, verse 40. Verse 40 says this, And you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourself. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive him. If another shall come in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father, the one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This morning we come to the conclusion of uh, this incredibly powerful and significant chapter here in the book of uh, John. It's a chapter that is focused primarily and squarely upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is. And again, the chapter is demonstrated over and over again by both action and word that he is none other than the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the God who has come in the flesh. And I've said repeatedly through this uh, series that what you think of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ is the most important issue in your life. In fact, I have uh, entitled this sermon with an admittedly provocative title, 
uh, how to go to hell. Which, on one hand, someone would say, well, that doesn't seem very appropriate for a pastor to uh, teach on. But on the contrary, I would argue it's extremely important for a pastor to teach on because the reality is nobody intentionally goes to hell. But hell is full. Hell will be full of sinners who have failed to repent and place their faith solely upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, heaven, on the other hand, is full of sinners. But the sinners that are in heaven are those who have repented and cried out to God for mercy through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one whom he has promised to provide that mercy and forgiveness of sin. And it is that simple. Believe the truth concerning the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is God's only provision for sin, that he is God's substitute for forgiveness of sin and inheritance of eternal life, and God wishes to give that man to men freely, that eternal life. Believe that and be saved. Reject that truth and pay for that error eternally in a literal, physical place of conscious torment, a place called hell, a place which there is no hope of ever escaping, a place of endless agony, remorse, and anger because those who are there are going to be angry because they're going to realize at one point that they have been deceived, deceived by their own sin, deceived by Satan himself. Now, a lot of people say they don't believe in the doctrine of hell, and I understand that, because if it is true, it is a horrific doctrine of endless punishment. Therefore, a lot of people just flat out believe it's not true. There's no objective reason for that. Uh, other than they just say it doesn't exist. A lot of other people say, well, if, it, uh, if, uh, uh, that if God does exist, you know, he'd be too loving to ever send somebody to a horrific uh, place like this, so I'm going to choose not to believe in hell. So most people don't believe in hell. Most people, too, also believe that Jesus is not the answer. Now, he, he's a nice guy, some kind of religious figure of the past, something that you weak people uh, put your confidence and faith in, but... He's not the answer to my internal destiny. He's not the answer to my sin problem. Therefore, most people go on and live their lives believing that if they do more good than bad, that in the end, God is going to let them into his heaven, which he will not do. And for many, there's a difference between what men believe and what is actually truth. True truth. And it has been allotted to us in time... Every one of us, we only have the time that is allotted to us in our existence in this life to figure out what is true truth and then to submit to that truth. Because once we die, every single one of us is going to know the truth for certainty, right? We're going to know the truth with certainty. And what a terrible tragedy it would be to find out that when it was too late, after you took your last breath and you stepped into eternity, that hell really did exist that it really was a real, literal, eternal place of punishment. And you had opportunity after t- opportunity uh, to not go there, but you scorned God's mercy and his grace through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You rejected that God who's immensely loving, and he is, because that's why he's continued to repeat the message of this literal place of eternal punishment, because in his love he doesn't want you to go there, and in his love he wants you to know there's a way to escape that coming reality. That coming reality of punishment that exists because God is holy. He has a tremendous hatred for sin and a tremendous hatred for all that is not righteous. But again, on that day, because you chose in time to reject, you wake up and you are not willing to repent. You are not willing to believe. You are unwilling to accept that gracious gift while you had opportunity because you spent your time scorning God, scorning Christ, never investigating his claims. What a tragic day that will be. And there will be many people who find themselves in that position. Many people have chosen to go on living their lives as if God does not exist. That as if everything around us is just some uh, result of cosmic chances over long periods of time, refusing to see God's order and purpose and design in the creation, and again refusing to believe that there's a creator to whom we're all accountable. And what a sad day it will be for you to refuse God's warning of a coming day of judgment. Because if God does exist, and he really does, if God has provided a way of uh, evidence of, of his existence by way of creation and conscience, if God really does punish sin, and he does, because his word says that's what he does, and he has punished sin again through the eternal one, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you chose not to believe, what a sad day that will be.
Now, why do men choose not to believe? Why do they choose to reject truth? Why do they choose to to reject God's mercy, choose not to accept the pardon and forgiveness uh, of sin that comes through God's love, through his mercy, through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ? Why would men spend their entire life and not choose to investigate the truth? Why would anyone not want to have his or her sin forgiven and have eternal life as a free gift so they would not have to face God and his wrath and eternal punishment? Well, I think there's some reasons. They're not very good ones, but there are some reasons that people put forward. Some people choose not to believe or to reject Christ because they have been wounded by professing, quote-unquote, Christians. Right? Maybe you've met people like this, wounded by professing Christians, wounded by, quote-unquote, the church in the past. Someone who claimed to represent Christ, someone who is perhaps a priest or a minister, who either abused them or abused one of their family members. Therefore, they conclude that Christianity is a sham and everyone who claims the name of Christ is just like that person who harmed them or their family. Other people choose not to believe because they grew up in so-called, quote-unquote, believing church families, but their parents were abusive. Uh, Their parents were hypocrites. They lived hypocritical lives. They were evident before the children. And when the children grew up and were freed from the constraints of the home life, they fled the church. They fled their their idea of Christianity never again to return. Still, there are other people who grew up in the church, who attended Sunday school and went to youth group, who played the Christian game, if you will, all through high school. But when they went off to university, they had their faith undermined by an atheistic professor uh, because they were not grounded in the truth. They weren't grounded in the truth and didn't have a true knowledge, a personal knowledge of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, I could go on and on, right? The Muslims reject Christ, and you could throw the Mormons into that same category. Because both groups have misconceptions about who Jesus Christ is that do not line up with the biblical text. And if they were to believe upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, as he is revealed in the Bible, as he is revealed in the text of Scripture, it would bring shame upon them, shame upon their family, resulting in the family disowning them. And in the Muslim world, you could throw in, they would even be targeted for death. So there's a tremendous social pressure and family pressure uh, against believing on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in, in, in some people. The text, in fact, before us uh, that we've been working, working through says that uh, the religious leaders of Israel, the Jews, if you will, uh, you could apply this uh, to them and to any other religious system in the world. Apart from biblical Christianity, Jesus says of the religious, you're unwilling to come to me that you might have life. You're just unwilling to come. Right? Some people never come to a knowledge of the truth in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ because they love their own personal outward religiosity. They love the religious system that they're trapped in. They love the system that they're trapped in opposed to seeking an inward reality of conversion, biblical conversion, by God through his grace, through the person of the Holy Spirit, in and because of Jesus Christ. Therefore, they reject him. Now, whatever scenario you might find yourself in, the reality is most men and women are unwilling to come to Christ. Most men and women are unwilling to come that they might have life. The bottom line issue, as we've seen in our study in the book of John, in John chapter 3, 19 and 20, is that people reject truth because they love their sin. They love their sin. They love their sin. They hate having their sin exposed by Christ's light. They love their sin, and they hate righteousness. Now, we understand the Bible tells us that if a man is saved, he is only saved because of God's kindness and his grace, his mercy, that has awakened him from the dead, uh, and he has seen his need, and God has granted him life as a gift. If a man is lost, the Bible teaches us that man himself bears that responsibility for his unwillingness to believe. That's the biblical truth. I've told you there are two, two twin truths that kind of stand side by side, clearly taught in the Scripture. The responsibility for unbelief clearly lies with the sinner. Not with his circumstances. Not with his parents. Not with his culture. Not in his situation. But the responsibility clearly for unbelief lies with the sinner who loves his sin and hates righteousness. And judgment for unbelief doesn't come because God is unwilling to save or God is unwilling to forgive. He is. The Bible repeatedly says that. 
from the Old Testament to the New Testament, whoever believes, come. Whoever believes, come. Come, uh, I will no ways cast them out or turn them away. Come all, come unto me, all you who labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. That is the repeated promise from the Old Testament to the New Testament from a God who is loving and a God who is merciful and desires that men would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. The Bible says, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature, all things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. It says, all these things are from God who reconciled us by himself uh, to himself through Christ, who gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That is the, the plea again from the Old Testament and through the New Testament to be reconciled unto God. So if you've not been reconciled unto God this morning and you're listening to me here in this room or you're listening to me on the live stream, I beg you on behalf of Christ to stop and consider your eternal destiny. You who have not believed, you who have failed to repent and place your faith solely on the Savior. Because again, from the top of the study, I told you the most important thing that you believe in, the most important issue in your life, the most vital, eternal issue in your life is what you think of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. I don't care about what color you like. I don't care what your politics are. I don't care where you like to eat. The most important issue is what will you do with the Savior? And you only have time to make that decision. You only have the time that God has granted you for life. And none of us knows how long that is. You only have the time that God has granted you to make a decision because the Bible says, because we are created in the image of God, that once we are born, we live what? We live forever. We are all eternal beings. Once born, we live forever. And one day after these physical bodies cease to work, that doesn't end our existence. People will either head to a place of eternal destruction or a place of eternal life. And again, it all depends on what that person does with the person of Jesus Christ. Again, it is that simple. It is that simple. And the entirety of the study so far in John, and especially John 5, has been one look after another, unequivocally proving by evidence and by testimony the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. John, who's the author of the book, says, Look, my thesis, the reason I'm writing this book, these things have been written to you that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. That's why the book is written. God wants you to know. You are ingesting all kinds of information on a daily basis from all kinds of different sources. You might want to stop at some point and get some good information from a trustworthy source, and that would be God himself through the Scripture. On chapter, on the top of chapter 5 here, uh, we, we saw Christ's deity on display uh, without question, right? When he healed that lame man who was laying there at the pool of Bethesda for some 38 years. Listen, no mere man can do that. No mere man can instantaneously provide healing for another man who has been laying there lame for 38 years, yet Christ did that very thing, which proves he's not a mere man. But instead of carefully investigating the situation, the Jews, the religious leaders show up, and they just proclaim, well, he's a blasphemer. Jesus is a blasphemer, you know. We have this special holiday, uh, the Sabbath, and he's breaking it, right? They don't even investigate the truth. They just start making accusations. In fact, they start persecuting him. They want to murder him. They want to kill him. Verse 40 in our text, he says, they were unwilling to come. You're unwilling to come to me that you might have life. And Jesus is saying what he says because he wants people to have life. He doesn't want you to be confused. Over and over again, he makes proclamations of his equality with God. The fact that he's equal with God in nature, that he's equal with God in work, that he's equal with God in power, he's equal with God in truth. Therefore, consequently, he's equal with God in honor and worship. We saw Jesus give testimony concerning the fact that the reality of who he is, truthful testimony. And he not only gave testimony himself, but he brought a witness to the stand, and a pretty important witness. Confirming testimony, cooperating testimony. And of course, that testimony was a testimony of God the Father. Again, verse 34 in our text. The witness which I receive is not from man. So again, he brings forth another witness not to receive a, 
or not to win the argument, but to win souls. Verse 34, I say these things that you might be saved. Begging, pleading. Stop, listen. Receive the truth. In our study, we saw how God the Father bears witness on three different levels, three different means, if you will. The first was the witness of John the Baptist. Right, the prophet of God, supernaturally born of God, supernaturally sent into the world uh, to give faithful testimony. Who's Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's who he is. He is the Messiah. Everybody acknowledged that John was a prophet sent from God. Even the religious leaders of Israel could not deny that truth. Yet they rejected John the Baptist and they rejected what he said concerning the person, the person of uh, Jesus uh, Christ, the one who was sent from God. They rejected that testimony. So God the Father brings a second line of testimony. And that was God the Father giving testimony to the reality of the deity of Jesus through the miraculous power that Jesus himself possessed. Jesus Christ, through repeated acts of compassion, repeated acts of kindness and mercy, affirmed his deity, again, demonstrating God's kindness, affirming not only his deity, but affirming the message of the gospel and through his ministry, I told you, he virtually wipes out all disease in Palestine. Healed everybody who came to him. Everybody. He healed everybody. He healed every kind of disease. Cast out demons. He walked on water. He forgave sin. He even raised people from the dead. There's never been anybody in human history like this man. The evidence for his deity is compelling. The facts that he is so much mere, more than just a mere man compelling. Even one of the religious leaders of Israel, Nicodemus, you might remember back in chapter 3, he had to acknowledge the fact that it was obvious that Jesus was from the Father. The works that Christ performed, Nicodemus says, it's obvious that you've been sent from God. That's why Jesus says here in chapter 5, verse 36, the witness which I have is greater than John. John gave a tremendous testimony, but look at me, the works that what the Father has given to me to accomplish, these very works I do, they bear witness to me that the Father has sent me. Again, the miraculous power of Jesus Christ is undeniable. Again, I told you his miraculous powers were so numerous, so public, that not even his enemies, not even the religious Jews, denied his miraculous power. Yet many remained unbelieving even hostile towards Christ. They wanted to murder him. They wanted to murder him who knew no sin. They wanted to murder him who came into this world because he only desires mankind's best. They wanted to murder him, the one whom God sent into the world to tangibly demonstrate God's mercy, God's compassion, God's love, God's desire to forgive sin. They wanted to murder him. The third line of evidence that the Father put forward to confirm the identity of his Son was the Scripture. Remember that in verse 37. The Father who sent me, he has borne witness of me. And you have neither heard his voice at any time or seen his form, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he has sent. You search the Scripture because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is these that bear witness of me, and you're not willing to come to me that you might have life. Now, again, the Jewish religious leaders prided themselves, didn't they, on their study of the Scripture. But the Old Testament was all about Christ, and they ultimately rejected him. And Jesus condemns the religious leaders for not having the word of God abiding in them. They were not true followers of Moses. They were not true Israelites. They had not grasped the meaning of the Old Testament text. They pretended that they had a reverence for God, but then they blasphemed Christ who is in their presence. Because the truth is, they did not have the Word of God in them, dwelling in their hearts. I told you last week, it's one thing to have a Bible in your house. It's another thing to have the Bible in you. Just because you have a Bible in your house doesn't mean you're saved. Just because you have a Bible in your house doesn't mean that eternal life is coming to you. Is that truth dwelling in you? It wasn't in the religious leaders. It wasn't dwelling in their hearts. They didn't have God's Word. They didn't, God's Word didn't guide their life, didn't guide their religion. Because ultimately, they refused to believe the one whom God sent. If they were true believers, if they were true followers of God, then they would have accepted the one whom God sent, and again, into this world out of his love and kindness. 
But the Jewish religious leaders rejected the testimony of God, the witness from God. They rejected the testimony through the witness of John the Baptist. They rejected it through the miraculous power of Christ and then through the testimony of the uh, Old Testament scripture. And again, that repeatedly pointed to Jesus as the Christ. All lines of undeniable evidence to the reality of who Jesus is and the Jews, the religious leaders, rejected them all. But I told you along the way in our study that evidence is never the issue in unbelief. There's more than enough evidence to confirm the historical truth concerning the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, Again, that he's none other than God come in the flesh. Men don't lack for evidence. The truth is men are blind to the truth. And the truth is men just flat out do not want to come to Christ to have eternal life. That's the truth. I've spoken many times to the issue that unbelief is completely irrational. Unbelief is the core of mankind's problem. Unbelief is the root of all mankind's problems and heartaches in a fallen world. And it's unbelief that activates activates the judgment and God's eternal wrath. And unbelief is intentional. It's an intentional act of the will. It's a choice. It's an intentional position that men take and hold on to by effort. In the face of the evidence that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And the fact that God desires to save men, that God desires to show men mercy, to bless men. And I often told you from this pulpit, there's nothing new, unique, or modern about unbelief. Because unbelief was just as prevalent in the first century as it is in our time. It's prejudice, hostility against the truth. It's an intentional rejection of the truth. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. Oh, but you don't understand. I'm a pretty good person. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. The Bible says no one understands. The Bible says there's no one who seeks God. That all have turned aside. Together they become useless. There's none who does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. Their tongues keep on deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction, and misery in their path. In the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the world we live in. It is a world of unbelief. It is a world of, un- of rejection of the truth. It is a world of destruction, misery. It's a world full of cursing, bitterness, violence, shedding of innocent blood. It is a world with no peace and a world that does not know God, has no fear of God. Yet if we're not turning to the Scripture, the Scripture says, uh, the, the Bible says that no one's even seeking God, right? Uh, people are all doing all these kind of things in their own direction, in their own will. Nobody's doing what is truly good by God's standard. So, it is a world that is under God's condemnation. A world that is heading for a judgment, eternal judgment. It's going to face God's wrath. It's a world that is, because of their stubbornness and unrepentant heart, is storing up wrath from themselves in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteousness of, the righteous judgment of, uh, of Jesus Christ or of God. It is a world that is storing up wrath because it continues to reject God's truth. A warning. Reality check. There's a problem. Do I have to spend some time to prove there's a problem in the world in which we live? Are we all, can we all just at least we agree there's a problem in the world? It's kind of becoming more and more evident. There's also a solution to the problem in the world. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son of the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. In a world of problems, there is a God of tremendous compassion and mercy. A God who desires to rescue men from this coming judgment, from this wrath that is coming upon all unbelievers. And he does that through his Son from heaven, whom he has raised from the dead. That would be Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. For the one who does believe upon the person of the Lord Jesus... God has not destined him for this wrath that is coming, but for him to obtain salvation through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God provides salvation through Christ, according to Paul, because he made him one who knew no sin, right? He made Jesus Christ, him who knew no sin, sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He sent the sinless one in the world out of his love to be the substitute to pour out 
his judgment upon him and not upon mankind. In fact, Christ goes on in John chapter 3, verse 18. He says, he who believes in Christ himself is not judged. He does not believe has been judged already. That's the position you're sitting under. If you're here this morning or listening on the live stream and you've not repented, you're sitting under God's active judgment. He does not believe has not been has been judged already because he's not believed the name of the only begotten Son of God. He who believes the Son has eternal life. The one who does not obey him shall not see life, but the wrath of, the wrath of God abides upon him. That's truth. It is a simple truth. Life is not complex. There are complexities in life, but life itself is not complex. Eternal issues are not complex. There's either truth or a lie. There's either life or there's death. It's that simple. So how can you ensure the fact that you will spend eternity in hell? Well, you just keep on going the way you're going. You just keep on rejecting the person of Jesus Christ, God's only means of salvation. You just keep on believing that it's a decision that you can put off until tomorrow, unless tomorrow never comes. You reject the truth. You continue to believe a lie that God does not exist, that Jesus is not the Christ, that he's not the Son of the living God, that there's no such thing as hell and eternal judgment, that you are not personally accountable to God. Therefore, you are your own God, and you can live your life any way you want, and you make up the rules for your own life. That's exactly what you're seeing everywhere. And that perhaps you'll do more good in the end and more than bad things, and God might let you into his heaven when you die. But that's all not the truth, right? That's how you go to hell. That's exactly the formula to go to hell. That's the roadmap. Reject the truth found in God's word, the Bible. And in your pride, which again, the Bible says is the root of all sin. Listen, you believe that you know better than God. You believe that you know better than God, but better than what God does, right? And in your pride and rebellion, you convince yourself that God doesn't exist. You deceive yourself into believing that, again, you can be good enough to get into heaven, that you don't need the person of Jesus Christ, and that will ensure your eternal destiny in a place, I guarantee you, you do not want to be. How do you make sure that you go to hell? You follow these guys. In John chapter 5, the religious leaders of Israel who rejected the truth, both written and incarnate, God in the flesh. They stood right in front of him, yet they rejected him, right? They missed him completely. Not only did they miss him, but they murdered him. And in the text that we're going to look at today that I read at the top of the hour, we're going to see this error played out by the religious leaders. Men who Jesus said of them, they were blind guides to the blind. Men of whom Jesus said in Matthew 23 that they were making other people twice the sons of hell as they were. Men of whom Jesus says, again, in the conclusion of chapter 5, five or four things about them. Here at this concluding paragraph, four things about them. And they're all really scathing rebukes concerning their unbelief. Uh, one writer said they're an epic indictment. And that's a pretty good way to, to look at it. An epic indictment. Uh, an indictment of epic proportions against the Jewish religious leaders because they won't honor their Messiah. I'll give you all four of them, then we'll work our way back through them. But number one, they don't want to come to Christ. Right? They really don't want to come to Christ. They're unwilling to honor the Messiah when he came into their presence. Number two, that is because they don't have a real love for God. They claim that they love God, but in reality they do not. They did not. They don't have a love for God because they really desire man's praise more than God's praise. And number four, they have, in reality, no faith in the writing of the Old Testament. They have no faith in Moses' writings. So here are these Jewish religious leaders, supposedly humble, but the truth is they're full of pride, supposedly lovers of God, but in reality they're lovers of self, supposedly servants of the Old Testament Scripture, but in reality they reject the Old Testament Scripture. So again, Jesus concludes chapter 5 with a scathing rebuke, a crushing rebuke, because of the false religious leaders and their false religious system. They're hypocritical false religious system. And again, four elements that really, as we unfold it, will really mark what their unbelief looked like. Four elements of their will, their, uh, their um, unbelief in the person of Christ. And, and not only these guys, it was in the entire nation of Israel, and you could take it out a little bit further, but it really is four elements of unbelief that you see in anybody who uh, fails to uh, acknowledge the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the world's full of people like that. 
Okay, let's start here in verse 40. The elements that wake up, uh, that make up unwillingness. And I'm going to actually go back to verse 30 just to get a running start here. It says in verse 39, uh, verse 39, you search the scripture because you think that in them you have eternal life, and at these that bear witness of me, verse 40, and you are unwilling to come to me that you might have life. So again, the Jewish religious leaders, I told you, they spent their entire life studying the scripture. However, in a bit of irony, with all of their effort, they utterly failed to grasp the main theme. They had a fanatical occupation with the scripture, right? They studied it, every line, every word, every letter. I told you sometimes they'd write a letter, throw a pen away, right? You know, they had all these rules and regulations, right? And they were fanatic in their, occup- in their occupation or preoccupation with the scripture, but they failed to miss or they failed to uh, understand the main truth, which is a pretty big miss, right? Spend your entire life studying the scripture and miss the entire point of what you're studying because the entirety of the Old Testament pointed to the person of Jesus Christ. And they missed him. They missed all of the prophecies concerning Christ. They missed all of the types pointing to Christ. They missed all of the ceremonies that spoke to Christ in his ministry. They missed everything in the Old Testament that pointed to him. Paul in Galatians 3 and 24 says, The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. So Paul says, look, the Old Testament scripture ought to take you to him. I ought to put enough condemnation upon you to know that you can't make yourself right by your own effort, that you need a Savior, and the Old Testament Scripture reveal that Savior. The Old Testament should lead you to Christ, to see your need of Christ. Again, to see the fact that you can't do anything to make yourself right with God. Only God himself can. Only God can cover sin through a substitute. The perfect substitute. The perfect Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. But again, the Jewish religious leaders in their pride, they missed him completely. They took great pride in their study. They took great pride in their great learning. In fact, over in John 9, you don't have to turn there, but I'll just tell you, in John 9, it's an interesting story of a man who's born blind. Jesus has opened his eyes, which is an undeniable miracle. And this man who was born blind that has been the recipient of that miracle, he argues with the Jewish religious leaders that if Jesus were not from God, he could not have done such a thing, that it couldn't have happened. Because no mere man can do this kind of a miracle. Verse 32 of chapter 9, this man says the following. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard of that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do no thing. He could not do this thing, right? And listen to the response of the Jewish leaders, the, the religious leaders in verse 34 of that chapter. They said, they answered and said unto him, You were born entirely in sin, and you are teaching us? And then they put him out. Huh. It's a bit of pride in that statement. I mean, who in the world are you? Well, I happen to be the one that I was born blind, and God just opened my eyes miraculously. It's never happened in the history of the world. He has to be from God. It's a pretty plain, who are you? We study the scripture. Who are you? You're born in sin. You're teaching us? A bit of pride. Tremendous amount of pride. Again, supposedly these guys, uh, these religious leaders had the Bible. Supposedly they understood the scripture. But again, they missed Jesus completely in their pride. Therefore, point number one, verse 40, you're unwilling to come to me that you might have life. That's it. Unwillingness. Unwillingness, again, is on the part of the unbeliever. It's not God keeping people from the truth because God wants people to come to a knowledge of the truth. He wants people to be saved. God desires that none should perish and all be saved. Now, the Bible says that men are naturally dead in trespasses and sin. They they cannot do anything about their condition of lostness. That eternal life is laid up for the sinner in the person of Jesus Christ and in him alone. Jesus Christ, who is the author of life, the creator of life, the fountain of life. Jesus Christ, who stands as man's substitute to bear our sin, again, to take our punishment so that our sin might be forgiven and we might have that life. Yet, in order to receive that benefit from Christ, men must come to him. Not run from him, but come to him. And they must come to him by faith, by faith alone. They must repent, turn from their sin, and believe upon him. Turn from their sin, believe upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and trust in him alone for forgiveness and their eternal destinies. But the sad truth for the vast majority of humanity is men are unwilling to come. 
They're just unwilling to come. Perhaps someone who's sitting here in this audience in this room. Perhaps somebody who's listening to me via live stream. You are unwilling to come to Christ that you might have life. Completely irrational. But that's what sin does, right? I said it all the time. Sin makes you stupid. God, through the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 33, verse 11, God says, Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die? Why will you die? And again, those who are unwilling to come, those who are ultimately lost, will find themselves in a place called hell. They will find themselves in a place of eternal punishment. And listen, they will end up there because they themselves have chosen to be there. Completely irrational. They themselves have chosen to be there. Because again, God, it's not that God is unwilling to save, he is. It's not that Christ is unwilling to save, he most certainly is. And again, the Lord stands by and bids all to come to him who wants to come to him. But men by their very nature are unwilling. Men are unwilling to come to Christ that they might have life. Because in part they love their sin, I've already said that, but they don't realize the awful condition that they're in, the awful peril that faces them. We are so dumb. Make all these plans for tomorrow, all these plans for next year. Not a single one of us is guaranteed the next breath. And every time you live your life thinking that you're going to have tomorrow, that, my friends, is the sin of presumption. You are not the author of life. You are not the director of life, the giver, the taker of life. Everybody in this room, everybody who's listening to me via live stream is one heartbeat away from eternity, and that's truth. I'm just here telling you the truth. It's presumption to think you'll have tomorrow. It's presumption to think you'll have next week. God has ordained our beginning. God has ordained our end. He is the giver and the taker of life. Men don't realize the peril that faces them. Men don't realize their heartbeat away from the brink of eternity. And if they are unrepentant, a heartbeat away from eternal wrath from which there's no escape. Most men are so stupidly indifferent to the matters of eternity, they have no understanding of their desperate need of Christ. They have no understanding of their awful condition before God, their wickedness, their blindness the hardness of heart, their depravity. Men are always stupidly comparing themselves to somebody else. I'm not as bad as that guy. I'm not as bad as that gal. That guy, that guy or that gal is not the issue. It's God's perfect standard of righteousness. God himself is the standard. The Bible says we all fall short of the glory of God. People don't understand Christ. They don't understand God. They don't understand Christ's glory. They don't understand what Christ did, why he came. If they but stop, bow their knee, and repent, Christ says, who's the great physician of our soul, he says, I'll come and I'll heal you. I'll heal you. But again, the Bible says the carnal mind, the fleshly minds, enmity against God, and they refuse to believe. The second aspect of the unwillingness that's here in this text, in this uh, text, that is applicable for not just the religious leaders, but for all unbelievers, in their willingness to reject truth, it's their unwillingness to glorify Christ, verse 41. Their unwillingness to glorify Christ, verse 41. I do not receive glory from men. Now, in the original, it says very literally, glory from men I do not receive. I don't receive honor from men, it says in the authorized. So men are unwilling to believe because they are unwilling to glorify Christ. Uh, again, Christ is the central issue in man's salvation. And the question is always, will you repent and honor Christ? Will you abandon yourself? Will you deny yourself? Will you take up your cross and follow Christ? That's the issue for everyone. But Christ says, you do not give me glory. Now, it's not that men give glory to God uh, like they can add to God's glory, but they recognize his value, his intrinsic value. And he says, the unbelieving won't do that. He says, the unbelieving refuse to honor me. They call me a blasphemer. They persecute me. They're seeking to kill me. Again, the one who came into the world sent out of the Father's love, the one who has a tremendous compassion and mercy and grace and kindness for all men. 
The one who came because he is the Lamb of God. He is the only substitute. He is the one who knew no sin. He is the one who became our sin bearer. The one who is despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. The one who he himself in his own body, our griefs he himself bore. Our sorrows he carried. The one who was pierced through for our transgression. Who was crushed for our iniquities. The vast majority of men reject Christ in total. They are unwilling to come to him and they are unwilling to glorify him for who he is. That he is indeed the Christ, the son of the living God. Again, the lamb who alone takes away the sin of the world. That's the Jewish religious leaders. And the vast majority of the world, they're unwilling to come to Christ that they might have eternal life. Right, Verse 40, they don't glorify Christ. Verse 41, drop down to verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? I mean, how can you fellows uh, uh, believe in me when you're so busy with yourself, so busy glorifying yourself, so busy honoring yourself, so busy elevating yourselves, focusing on yourselves? How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? And the answer is it's impossible. You can't. Put a mark there in your Bible and turn back to the book of... uh, uh, Matthew. I just want to show you something real quick in Matthew. Matthew 23. Starting in verse 1. Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have, listen, seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Now, that's a position of authority. And, and note, they've seated themselves there. It's not anything in the text that says God or Christ put them there, but they set themselves in that seat of authority. Verse 3, therefore, all they tell you to do, all they tell you, do and observe. And now, that's with a caveat. Unless it, or, all that they tell you to do, do and observe, as long as it lines up with the Scripture. That's a caveat. But do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. Verse 5, listen, they do all they do, right? They do all their deeds to be noticed by men. They broaden their phylacteries. They lengthen the tassels on their garments. <clears throat> they love the place of honor at banquets, the chief seats at the synagogues, respectful greetings in the marketplaces, being called by men rabbi. These guys are hypocrites. They do all their deeds to be noticed by men. Right? They love a place of honor. They want to be called rabbi, leader, father. Although Jesus goes on in verse 9 and says, no man on earth should be called father because we only have one father. That's the one who's in heaven. And no man should be called leader because we only have one leader. That's God who's in heaven. Verse 10. They broaden their phylacteries. What's a phylactery? It's a little box that they carried around that contained the scripture, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6 and 4, Hear, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And instead of just a little box that should be put on the wrist, they had a big one. The bigger, the better. Look how big my phylactery is, right? Look how big, it, how, how, how much more noble I am. Look how much more righteous I am than anybody else, right? They had these, ta- these tassels that hung off their, their garments that were, again, supposedly reminders of their commitment to God and their supposed holiness, Right? They were all outward symbols, all outward pictures. They were the virtue signaling of our day, right? To show how much they cared. Supposedly they cared more than anybody else. Verse 11. But the greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from men, for you do not enter yourselves, nor do you allow the one, those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, religious leaders, right? Now, the word woe, I've told you this before, is not so much as a word uh, per se. It's an onomatopoetic. Uh, uh, it's, it's just an interjection. It's a, it's a kind of a sound uh, that is put into a word. Uh, in the Greek, the word woe would be somewhat difficult to translate, but it kind of suggests a guttural cry uh, uh, of anger, pain, or both. In, in the Septuagint, it was used to express grief, uh, despair, sorrow, 
uh, dissatisfaction, pain. Uh, in the New Testament, it's used to speak of sorrow, judgment. It kind of carries the mingled ideas of punishment and pity and cursing and wrath and, and sorrow. So woe is used here by Christ against the scribes and Pharisees, uh, not so much of a, as an exclamation, but really a declaration. It's a declaration. It's a pronouncement of judgment from God. It's kind of a curse. It is a curse. And this is the true judgment that comes from the true person, the true verdict rendered by the supreme judge himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. Judgment is coming. Verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel about on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one of you, you make him twice as much the sons of hell as yourself. Right? Again, you want to know how to go to hell, just follow these guys. They're on the fast track. In their pride, in their failure, in their unwillingness to believe and come to Christ. Follow them in seeking your own glory and not glorifying Christ. Go back to John. John chapter 5, verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the only God? The glory that is from the one and only God. Now, the glory here is not some abstract principle. We talked about that a few weeks back in men's study. I, I really think here in the context, the glory should be capitalized. Because I think he's speaking about himself. I think Christ is referring to himself. He is the glory. Right, so it's not a concept, it's a person or abstract principle. It's a, it's, it's a person. It's he, who he is. He is the glory that came from God. You go, where in the world do you get that? Well, I just read the Bible, John 1, 14. The word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld his Glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And again, how can you believe when you're receiving glory from one another and you don't seek the glory that God, the one and only God, sent? Answer again, you can't. It's not a matter of evidence, it's a matter of heart. You're unwilling to come to me that you might have life. I do not receive glory from men. Verse 44, how do you believe, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another, you do not seek the glory that has come from the one and only God? Again, answer, same thing, can't. For glorifying ourselves or working to get glory from other people, then we can't glorify Christ because he's not the object of our affection. If you're going to have Christ as the object of your affection, he says you need to deny yourself, not glorify yourself. You need to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. It's a call to death. So the truth is, if you refuse to humble yourself... And see Christ again as your only hope. If you refuse to acknowledge your own utter unrighteousness and sinfulness, your own inability to do anything about your own sin, if you fail to call out to God through Christ for mercy, just as the religious leaders of Israel did, that will again ensure your eternal destiny in hell. Jewish religious leaders, like many people today, they turn their back on Christ. They refuse to praise him. They refuse to honor him or glorify him, glorify him or acknowledge him for who he truly is. Again, it's not a matter of evidence. It's a matter of the heart. Jesus, in John fourteen six, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one, no one goes to the Father, comes to the Father, but through me, no one. So the indictment, firstly, of Christ against the false religious leaders of Israel, they don't want to come to him. They are willingly, uh, there's a willingness in their unbelief. They don't want to come. Number two, they refuse to glorify him, the Messiah who showed up physically in their presence. They've rejected him. They've blasphemed him. Again, they're going to murder him. Christ's third indictment against the religious leaders and their unwillingness to come to him is they don't love God. They don't love God. You are unwilling to come to me that you might have life. I do not receive glory from men. Verse 42 but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another shall come in his own name, you will receive him. But I know you. It is a declaration, an affirmation of omniscience. The fact that Christ knows everything. The, Christ that, the fact that Christ knew their hearts, he knew their motives. I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I mean, again, what a tremendous shot against these false teachers. They spent their entire life, again, studying the Scripture to increase their knowledge 
For what purpose? For their own glory. Look how smart I am. Look how much I know. They wanted men to speak highly of them. They didn't spend their entire life to grow in their knowledge and their love for God. Christ said they don't have any. I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourself. And again, that's not a point that's up for dispute. Even though they claim to be lovers of God, Christ says, I know you don't. I know that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. Verse 43, I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. So again, Jesus making another connection between the fact that he is the Son of God and God is Father. Right? I am the eternal Son. He is my Father. I come in his name and you don't recognize me. You don't receive me. I, I know therefore that means that you don't love God like you falsely claim. So instead of obeying the religious leaders, instead of obeying the, great, the first great commandment of loving their God with all of their heart, soul, and strength, they're breaking that very law. And instead of representing God, they're actually representing the Antichrist. First John 2 and 2, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father who... Uh, the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Again, I've told you, reject Jesus as the Christ, then you reject God as the Father. You cannot say with any semblance of truth that you love God and reject Jesus. You can say that, but it's not truthful. That's the statement of the Antichrist. Can't say you love God and reject His Son. It's a lie. Therefore, you can't possibly love the Father if you reject the one whom he sent into the world in his own name, out of his own love. I have come in my Father's name. You do not receive me. Then he goes on and says, If another shall come in his own name, you will receive him. What in the world does that mean? Well, ultimately, Israel's rejection of the true Messiah is going to prepare them to accept the Antichrist. The Antichrist. So I think there's a little prophetic element in that statement. I think that he is speaking a bit here of the future. In fact, if you were to look at Matthew 24, which you don't need to do, the Lord describing the future that goes on during the time of the tribulation when judgment does come, one of the things that the Lord promises is that's going to happen is there's going to be a number of false Christs that lead up to that moment, a number of false Christs that lead up to the revelation, the revealing of the Antichrist. Matthew uh, 24, 4, Jesus said, See that no one misleads you, for many will come to me. Many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. It will mislead many. I mean, there's a warning right there. There's going to be many wars and rumors of wars, nations against nations, and kingdoms against kingdoms, various places, famines, earthquakes. All these things are merely the, the beginning of the birth pangs. They'll deliver you to tribulation. They'll kill you. They'll be hated by all nations on account of my name. That, uh, and at that time, many will fall away and will deliver up one another and hate one another. Verse 11, and many false prophets will arise and mislead many. Because lawlessness increased, most people's love will grow, cold, will grow cold. You know, in the history of Israel, because of their unwillingness to come to Christ and their unwillingness to um, repent and understand who he is and reject him as God's true Messiah, uh, their lack of love for God uh, led them to have a desire to follow a number of false Christs. They had a tremendous love, a desire of following false Christ because they rejected and despised the true Christ. In the history of the nation of Israel, uh, there are many false messiahs that came. Historians have counted, I've read somewhere between 64 and 70. Somewhere between 64 and 70 false messiahs that gained influence with the nation during the first hundred years after the Lord's death. In fact, following one of these false messiahs that led to the revolution that resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Sixty years after that comes another false messiah, captures the interests of Israel, and on and on it goes in the history of the nation. It's remarkable that a nation could be so easily deceived by imposters in light of the fact that the Lord God himself had warned them that there'd be many pretenders who would come, and they should not be believed, they should be rejected, but the reality is because of mankind's heart, they love false teachers. Why? Men love false teachers because false teachers will tell you what you want to hear. False teachers will tell you what you want to hear. And they will avoid telling you what you 
need to hear. They'll tell you what you want to hear. They'll avoid telling you what you need to hear and what God really wants you to know. And there are more than enough people willing to follow these kind of men who won't confront their sin, who won't tell them the truth. In fact, Paul told Timothy, the time will come, they will not endure sound doctrine, and wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers, and according to their own desires, will turn away their ears from truth, and will turn aside to myths. Verse 44, which we covered a bit earlier, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that's from the one and only God? It's against a rhetorical question. The answer is, of course, you can't. You can't because you will not. You can't believe if you don't seek the glory. Right? If you don't seek the person who's come from the one and the only God, you can't believe, can't be saved if you reject Christ. Again, reject Christ, that's how you go to hell. It is absolutely that simple. It's not a matter of evidence. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of humbling oneself. It's a matter of setting aside one's pride, repenting, and calling out to God through his Son, Jesus Christ, for mercy. Because, again, apart from Christ, there's no salvation. Apart from Christ, there's no escape, judgment to come. And very plainly, the Jewish religious leaders are unwilling. They flat out do not want to come. They don't want to come. They don't want to glorify Christ. They don't want to honor him because they don't have a real love for him, as they claim, verse, or point number four, they really don't believe the Scripture. Right? They really have no faith in Moses and his writings. I spoke on this last time, so I don't have to give it a whole lot of detail here. Verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, and whom you have sent your hope. Remember I told you earlier, Matthew 23, right? The scribes and Pharisees, they sit in the seat of Moses, right? They want to rule. They want to rule over people. They want to rule supposedly from the Old Testament law. So the term Moses is not just being the first five books, uh, of the Old Testament, Moses' writing, but really is a reference to the entire Scripture, right? In the first five books of the Old Testament, there's more than enough uh, information uh, about Christ. There's a lot in those first five books. Uh, you search the Scripture. You think that in them you have eternal life. These bear witness of me. They said again they love the Scripture. They honored, wanted to honor the Scripture, but in reality they don't. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. Again, these guys say, look, we're followers of Moses. We're followers of truth. And Jesus says, you know what, fellows? One day you're going to meet him. You're going to meet him, the one whose testimony you reject. He wrote of me. Verse 47, if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? If you don't believe the Old Testament text of Scripture, you're not going to believe God when he shows up incarnate in your very presence, and that's exactly who they were. Now, again, imagine the horror of these religious leaders who think very highly of themselves, who think they're on their way to heaven, to wake up one second after they take their last breath and realize that they are on their way to eternal condemnation. That's truth. Christ, on the road to Emmaus, downcast, disheartened disciples. Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe all of the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into glory? And beginning with Moses, with all the prophets, he explained to them things concerning himself from all the scripture. Again, the Jewish religious leaders thought they were followers of Moses. They thought they followed the word of God. They thought they were teaching what Moses taught, but they missed the entire point. They weren't. They rejected the word. Turn back. I'm going to show one text, and I'll be done. Luke 16. You know the story. It's a story of a certain rich man, a very poor man, a beggar named Lazarus, and they both die. And at the end of the story... The rich man is being tormented in hell. Luke 16, verse 22. The rich man also died and was buried. Verse 23. And in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. He saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger into water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus, bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you're in agony. Besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed, in order that one who wishes to come over 
from here to you may not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. Verse 27, he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you may send to my father's house, uh, you may send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Verse 29, But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They don't need some kind of supernatural experience. They just need the Old Testament text. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Verse 31, But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Men don't listen to the word of God. Neither neither are they going to be persuaded if someone rises from the dead, and that's exactly what Jesus Christ did. How can you ensure that you'll go to hell, reject Jesus Christ? Be unwilling to believe, glorify yourself, fail to love God, reject his word, and that'll pretty much ensure you that you'll go to a place that you don't want to be, a place of agony, a place that God should desires that you would not be there because he has made provision for you through Christ not to be in this place of eternal torment. To escape hell, to escape eternal punishment, to escape eternal torment, repent. Repent. Believe upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glorify Christ. Love God. Believe his word. Humble yourself. Put away your pride and come to the Savior because he is your only hope. Mankind's only hope. There is salvation in no other name. There's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we, be, by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ is the answer. And what you do with Jesus Christ determines your eternal destiny. It's that simple. Father and our God, we're thankful for that simple, simple truth that our hope is found in Christ, all of our hope. There's no other name, no other one so wonderful than Jesus Christ. And I don't know where people are in this room. I don't know who people are that are listening. You do. How could you reject so great a salvation? How could you reject the one who came? How could you reject the God who bids you to live? Why will you die? Pray, Lord, that you'd work in hearts and minds, cause a spirit of repentance, cause Christ to be elevated, that men might no longer be blinded by Satan and by their sin, but they might see the glory of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we love, whom we celebrate. And may they have life as you promised in his name. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.